pretty simple. Instead of God's story changing your story, tonight we're going to talk about being united to Jesus or plugged into him. And it's like when his story becomes your story. Your story becomes his story. It's like an, an overlap there. So let me read the passage for you. And if you want to take a stand for the reading of God's word, we will talk about uh, John chapter 15, verse 1 through 15. These are some of Jesus' very last words. Um, it's like if a man is on death row and about to be taken back to the execution chamber and he has 10 more minutes with his family. What do you think he's going to talk about? We get to be a fly in the wall for some of Jesus' very last words with his disciples. So pay attention to what he chooses to talk about when his hours are literally numbered uh, to go um, to the cross uh, for us. So this is what he tells his disciples. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that there may be more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it's he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a, a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. For by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment. Love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants anymore, for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy. We thank you that you are the one who says to people like us tonight, coming from the places we're coming from tonight, come to me without money. And buy. Come to me empty-handed and leave uh, full-handed. Uh, come to me as you are and leave different than you are. Uh, Father, we know we never have to twist your arm for you to be gracious, to be generous and kind. And so, Father, tonight would you do what you love to do, which is to uh, give blind people eyes, deaf people ears, dead people hearts that live and feel and see you, and love you. We pray all of this uh, in your name, that we would bear fruit, which brings you glory and pleases you. Amen. You ever see those lists of the top, like, five or ten stressors in life? On the top of the list are things like, someone in your immediate family passes away, or you get a divorce, or your parents get a divorce. Probably number three on most of those lists is unemployment. Some of you are struggling with unemployment right now. You've been applying for jobs over and over and over again, and you're not getting callbacks. Your jobs aren't working out. Or maybe you need a full-time job, and all you have is 10 hours a week. 
and you're struggling with unemployment. Or maybe you've seen it happen with your dad or your mom, and you've seen the power that unemployment can unleash on a family, on a marriage. It kind of rattles everything, shakes things apart, takes the wind out of the sails. Part of the reason unemployment is such a ranks right along the category of people dying and divorces happening is because it leaves you aimless, right? If you have a family member or you yourself have been unemployed one summer where you wanted a job and you didn't get a job and you sat at home all the time, what was life like for you? You're kind of twiddling your thumbs. You wake up and then you have to face that unsettling realization, I have nothing to do except for eat and then go to bed again in about 14 hours. Life feels aimless to you, and you begin to wonder the question, now what do I do? What am I supposed to do with my life? I don't have anything to do. So unemployment is hard because of the aimlessness, the purposelessness, the futility of it all. I think, I believe, I see that a lot of Christians, myself included, suffer from spiritual unemployment. A sense of waking up in the morning, and and you're like, I get this grace thing. I hear these sermons. I read these books. I go to these Bible studies. I get it that I don't do anything to earn or impress God. He loves me. He comes to me. But what do I do now? And so as it were, your life is kind of spent on the couch wondering, do I have anything to do except for just going to bed? And, and, and it can get very depressing, very exhausting to live that kind of life if that's kind of how we see Christianity. You know, God's like rubber stamp me, innocent, clean, righteous. Now, just hang on for another 45, 65 years And then when you die, we'll get about the business of heaven. Or does he declare you righteous and then say, let's get to work? Beautiful things. Getting about the business of doing your life in a whole new way. That's what he actually says. And so if you can relate it all to spiritual unemployment, not knowing what to do, kind of feeling lethargic and no wind in your sails, this is the passage for you because it talks about a lot of that stuff. I think you'll find it very sweet to your ears as I have. Um, Here's the three points we're going to hit Uh, The three main points of the passage, um, they're on your bulletin. If you're following along, they are these. We are attached to Jesus at the hip. We'll explain that in a second. But you're attached, if you're a Christian, it's not just that you follow Jesus or, or walk with Jesus or pursue him. You're attached at the hip to him. That's the first thing. The second is abiding. We'll explain that word. Abiding in Jesus is the only way you will be productive as a human being. I'm speaking more broadly than just Christians. To be fruitful as a human being, the only way is to abide in Jesus. And guess what? We can't even abide in Jesus on our own. And so God helps us abide in Jesus to become fruitful. So let's circle back around to that unemployment um, illustration for a second. Why do we get into those little spiritual funks that we get into? If you can relate to that. What am I supposed to do? Just sit back? Just believe? Uh, What does this actually mean for my roommates? Why do we get into these funks? We tend to look at Christianity as some kind of system, some formula, some dance. You've got to learn the right techniques and moves to master, and then it'll go easier for you. It'll be better, more satisfying. And so we ask the kind of questions like, can you teach me how to pray in a way that God will feel like he's right here all the time? Or can you teach me how to learn God's will for my life so that I don't have to walk forward into the midst of foggy darkness and trust him? Um, Can you teach me better techniques? How do I fight sin and temptation in a way that I don't have to struggle anymore? And Christianity becomes a system of redemption, just like any other religion. Here's some principles. Learn these. Get better technique, and life will go well for you. But as Eric said, as with the song we sang, that's not how it works. I had a professor at seminary who always used to tell us, God didn't give us 
a system of redemption, a formula, a dance. He gave you a redeemer. He gave you a person. He gave you himself with all of his resources. And that makes all the difference. Because if Christianity for you is a system of redemption, who is the playmaker in your life? If it's all, it's a, if it's all about a dance, you've got to learn techniques, you've got to get better at. Who is the, who's the most important link in that? Who's the playmaker? You. And your life becomes about how well you're performing, how good you are at these techniques, how much you're progressing in all the different disciplines. Have you learned how to disciple? Have you learned how to do good evangelism? Have you learned how to pray well? And it becomes an impersonal, hollow, weak, powerless experience of Christianity. And it feels awful. Y'all know how it feels. I know how it feels, right? If it's a system, if it's a dance, that's what it feels like. However, if it's a person, if it's a redeemer God's given you, if he's given you himself, it is intensely personal. And because it's intensely personal, who's the playmaker in that view of Christianity? You or the redeemer? You or Jesus? Is it more important your grip on Jesus? That's the first model. Or is it Jesus' grip on you? Is it your love for Jesus that's more crucial? Or his love for you? Your hold on him or his hold on you? Who's the playmaker? Here, it's me. And so based on my performance, I'm either self-righteous or I'm utterly despondent, broken, questioning everything because I realize I don't have any power. Here, it's steady. Here you can weather the storm because of who is with you. And so it really does make all the difference. Um, And that's what the passage really boils down to. It's really simple. Jesus makes it really simple. He said everything in your life, everything in the Christian life, traces back to him. He is the headwaters. Every other little thing is a stream that flows down from that. And so it's all about him. And he gives us this little, um, this actually really helpful metaphor that I hope we can all leave with tonight as a little... um, as a little tool to remember these things. But he says, you're branches, I'm, br- I'm a branch, and he's the vine. Now, we unpack the metaphor. Why does he highlight those parts of the metaphor? You're branches, I'm a branch, and he's the vine. He's drawing out this. A branch can't survive on its own. Why can't a branch survive on its, not survive on its own? Because it doesn't have any of the resources that are required to sustain itself. It gets all its nourishment all its sustenance, all its power, all its strength, all its immunity to other pathogens and stuff from the roots, from the vine. And the branch has nothing in it uh, to sustain itself. And so the second you lop it off, it dies, right? And Jesus says the father goes by and picks up those branches, just like you do in your yard growing up. If you did yard work, you go pick up the twigs, you put them in a pile, you burn them, or you throw them away. That's why he uses the, the branch and the vine's metaphor he's drawing it all back to himself and he's saying something like this if you're disconnected from jesus christian hear this person who doesn't know where you are with jesus hear this person who knows you don't want to be with jesus hear this if you're disconnected from jesus you have no life no sustenance and you will wither so god looks at that and he doesn't just say well that's your decision go with it make your own decision he pleads with you And he says, you're a branch. You can't survive on your own. You can't cut that tie and expect to have life. The vine is what gives you life. So that's his point. That's the point of the metaphor. Some of you have heard the name John Calvin. He's like, Michael Jordan is to basketball what John Calvin is to theology. Probably the the heaviest hitter in history. Um, About uh, 
400 years ago in France and Switzerland. John Calvin said this. He said, we must understand that as long as Jesus remains outside of you, disconnected from you, as long as he remains outside of you, you are separated from him. And all that he has suffered, all that he has done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. All that he uh, possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. And so he's saying, if you're a branch, it doesn't matter how beautiful, how strong, how resilient that vine is. If you're severed from it, it's of no use to you. You have to be plugged in. You have to abide in it. You have to be one with it. If you are to survive, if you're to thrive, if you're to grow. And so that's what, that's what John Calvin said. It's really helpful because if you're disconnected, uh, to the extent that we're disconnected, him, we're disconnected uh, from life. So does this matter that you really have to know this or is this just like some good theology that would be cool to be able to quote one day to someone else? It really, really matters. Here's why. I was in your shoes a little while ago and uh, when I was an RUF intern, my first, first few months of my Christian life, I was converted or God chased me down my senior year of college and uh, my first few months were easy as pie. It felt like everything was on autopilot. I loved the Lord. I loved people. I loved the Bible. I loved to pray. All those persistent sin patterns that were the monkey on my back my whole life, I got a little breather from that. But what happened soon after that is now that I had eyes to see, I didn't just see like my drunkenness or my sexual sin as the, like the big billboard sins. I could see now. And so I could see little smaller stuff that I was blind to before like how I use people, how I flatter people and lie to them to get them to like me. And I started to examine my heart. I'm very introspective. So I started to examine my heart to the point that I had gotten myself into a very dark, very stuck place for very long, two of the three years of my RUF internship. That song from John Newton was a lifeline to me. I remember the first time I sang it, I got through two verses. And then once you start hearing what's happening in that song, I couldn't sing the rest. I was just broken. Because it put hope back in the picture. God is at work in the midst of this. But I talked to my campus minister and I said, Rob, I searched my heart. I know what Jesus says it looks like for a heart to be alive, for a person to be alive in him. And it's like, I look at my heart and I see all corruption, just a bunch of junk in there. Like perverted thoughts, the kinds of things I think about, the kind of motivations I have, even the good stuff I do, the awful motivations I have for it. And I was asking him because I was beginning to question, am I really a Christian or not? Was this some deception? And I'll never forget what Rob said. He said, Ben, why are you surprised to find nothing but corruption and pollution in your heart? Your righteousness was never in your heart. He said, your righteousness is sitting at the right hand of the living God in heaven right now with scars on his hand. That's where your righteousness is. He said, if you search in your heart for goodness, for merit, for something to hang your hat on of why you measure up, of why you're good. You're going to search the rest of your life. You're never going to find anything. And you're going to drift away as a cynic. You're going to drift away as an insane person. Some days I felt right on the border of that. But he said, Ben, don't look at yourself. Look at Jesus. Don't look at the branch. Of course the branch is weak. Of course the branch doesn't have roots. But he does. Look to him. And that slowly began to seep into me and reorient where I look now When I have those little moments, you probably have too, where you're like reacquainted with how awful you are. 
And you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on with me? Where do you look in those moments? Do you search yourself? Do you look to Jesus? Do you look at the branch wondering why it can't sustain itself? Or do you look to the vine? So here, that's, that's kind of negatively what this metaphor means. If you're disconnected from Jesus, you're disconnected from all of his resources, all of what he's done. You're disconnected from his story. And your story takes a very tragic, dead-end ending. But positively, let's look at the metaphor. What does it mean that we are plugged into and abiding in Jesus? What does it mean for the branch to be united to the vine? Have you ever seen those documentaries on the Siamese or conjoined twins? I think there's a new politically correct term for that. But it's babies that were somehow fused together in the womb. Some part of their body grew into their twins. They're born. They're both fully alive. A lot of them have full life terms. But uh, here's the problem. There's usually a strong twin and a weak twin in that because it's not like they each have a set of kidneys, they each have a set of lungs, they each have a brain and a heart, they share. And so one, usually if it's more than halfway on his side or halfway on my side, one twin gets the vital organs and the other twin is just connected to their blood system. They get all the nutrients, they get the circulation, they get the oxygenated blood, they get the immune system, they get the antibodies. But what happens if you... The reason why a lot of them won't have surgery, even though it would give liberty to one of them, is it would kill the other. Because they can't survive on the end. They don't have what it takes. They're utterly dependent on the strong one. They don't have the equipment to survive. And so they rely upon the other one. And so if they become disconnected, they both die in a way. And so forgive the, um, the crude metaphor with that. I know it's not perfect. But when God says to a dead sinner, rise up, son, daughter. He makes you a Siamese twin or a conjoined twin with no one less than the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? You don't have the heart. You don't have the brain. I don't have the kidneys. He has it all. But guess what? 100% of my body from head to toe is joined into him. What does this mean? Everywhere you are, guess who is there with you? Jesus, with all of his resources, everywhere he is, guess who's with him? You are. Yes, we're getting into mysterious territory. Paul talks about this all the time. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. Where Jesus is, his people are. Where his people are, Jesus is. That's why he says when you persecute his church, you persecute him. And he's taking names. So where we are, he is. Where he is, we are. It also means this. If you feel pain... He cares. He says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Do you, do you believe that Jesus is actually affected by your story? Or do you think he doesn't care? He's just jamming down your throat his story and has no interest in yours at all. Or do you see that he's moved by it? He's affected by it. He pities us in our weak places. He weeps with us in our sad places. He rejoices with us in the places we see little victories. Do you believe that? Or is your Redeemer monochrome, black and white, gray, no facial expressions, just sits with his finger on some buttons in the control room of heaven? It also means this. He means that you can face anything that Jesus can face, okay? That's huge. Remember we talked about Jesus in the wilderness a couple of weeks ago? That's what I was talking about. We have no business getting in the ring with things like your flesh, your sin, your temptation, 
or the devil or the world. It's like George Foreman or Mike Tyson getting in the ring with a six-year-old. Not going to go well. But what if you're united? What if you are the Siamese twin to the heavyweight champion of the world? You have every business being in the ring. Guys, that's the only, only reason God ever calls us to fight temptation. Who are you united to? The victor who has already delivered the death blow. That's the only reason. Jesus doesn't go around telling non-believers, fight your sin. He says, you're dead. You need me to come alive. He doesn't say, fix your sin problem and then come to me. He says, you're dead. That's what he says. Last, it means this. Like we just sang in the song, Abide With Me, Though I Leave Jesus, guess what? If I am united to him, who goes with me when I wander, when I rebel, when I run? He goes with you. That's what a covenant means. You know why people make promises in their marriage? They're saying, wife, if you go this way, I go that way. Husband, if you run this way, I go that way. God says to his people, Israel, if you go that way, I go with you. And if I go that way, you go with me. Covenants are leashes. Promises are leashes. They hold you to your better self. And that's what he's doing here. That's what Jesus, that's what it means that we abide with him, that he abides with us. And so what I said earlier, it means that Jesus' story, if you're, if you're his Siamese twin, or you're, you're conjoined to him, sharing that blood system, sharing the nutrients, sharing the digestion, sharing his brain, sharing his heart, his emotions. If that is true, then it means his story in a most unbelievable way has become your story. It's not just it's changing your story, not just that he's giving you advice on how to have a better story. It's literally becoming your story. The lines between you and Jesus are getting blurred. And for people... As you mature as a Christian, it's harder for people to tell you apart from him, in a way. Yeah, we screw up. Yes, we're fools. Yes, we're weak. Yes, they very quickly realize we're not him. But Jesus all the time says stuff like, when they see you, they'll see me. So as we abide in Jesus, as we soak up and absorb and linger in him, the lines between you and God blur. And when people see you, they start asking questions about him. Peter says it all the time. When the, when, the, when the people outside of the church see your good behavior, guess who they glorify? You? No. God? Yes. He made them that way. He made us that way. And so that's what it means. Uh, real quickly, if you want to read your own Bible uh, on your own, um, Romans 6, this is where Paul talks all about this stuff. If you're joined to Jesus, guess what? When he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he took the wrath of God for sin, you took the wrath of God for sin. God doesn't blink his eye and say, I'm a nice guy. Ben, why don't you slide by in the back door? Because you tried really hard. You tried to be a good person. Come in the back door. He doesn't work like that. The reason you are absolutely free, completely without any worry from your sin, if you're in Jesus, is because God has already looked dead in the eye of everything you've done, everything I am. He's looked at it. He's crushed it. There's nothing left. He's already dealt with it. He looks at you now and he says, the law wants nothing from you. You have completely measured up. That's how free you are in Jesus. So these are the implications of abiding with Jesus. Um, It's all over the Bible. It's beautiful. It is a big, wide, juicy, sweet, good news. And it's bigger than just God stamps you 
innocent. This is amazing. Because it means every single good thing in the Christian life. Why does it come to you? Because it's in Jesus' blood system. And it gets into yours when you're united to him. By faith, by his spirit, when you believe. The spirit grafts you in, in a sense, plugs you into him. We need to push on because Jesus doesn't leave it just in saying, hey, isn't this cool? Isn't this encouraging? He pushes to super-duper practicality. And he starts talking about things like fruitfulness. Did you hear, did you get a little weary when I was reading the passage? You're like, man, he keeps repeating himself all the time. Fruitfulness, fruitfulness, fruitfulness. Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. Obedience, obedience. Love your brothers, love your brothers. Yes, remember it's his last few minutes with his disciples, probably wanting to let it stick in a sense. Um, But he starts talking about fruitfulness. What does he mean? Well, pretty much every human being in history has built their life around pursuing fruitfulness. Not a bad thing, right? Uh, How much money and time have you invested in pursuing fruitfulness in a job post-college or fruitfulness now in a part-time job or something? No matter where you are on the vocational spectrum, you're investing a ton of work in pursuit of fruitfulness. All the companies... All of our medicines, like the little blue pill old people take to restore a fruitful sex life. We're all in pursuit of fruitfulness. And God sees this, and he says, we got to be careful, though, what kind of fruitfulness we're after. Um, And Jesus is not necessarily just talking about financial fruitfulness or academic fruitfulness, but spiritual fruitfulness. Uh, And it's the fruits of the Spirit. Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's the fruit of being normal again for the first time ever. It's the fruit of being a human being again and not an animal. It's the fruit of being alive. It's vital signs that you have a heartbeat again. That's what he's talking about when he says, we being fruitful glorifies the Father. And and did you catch the connection between, remember we're talking about God's story, Genesis 1 and 2, be fruitful and multiply? Jesus doesn't give up on his dreams. Why? He doesn't have a competitor. He gets his way every time. He's king. There's no competing king. He gets his way. He doesn't have plan Bs. He has a bunch of plan As. This is his way. Human beings fruitful, covering the face of the earth, and flourishing and thriving. And this is how he says, at the end of the day, this is how it happens. Did you ever see that coming? He's not shouting down, hey, if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll be fruitful. He's saying, we're going into the operating room. And the Holy Spirit is going to join you and me together. And wherever you go, I go. And wherever I go, you go. And that is your hope. It's a person, not a system, not a dance, not techniques. As intimate as you get. So, real quickly, uh, why did Emily read Psalm 80? Israel was supposed to be this fine, right? said God cleared the ground. He cut the trees down so there could be uh, some sunshine there. He gave it water. And Israel didn't grow anything. Sour grapes, wild grapes. Garden got run over by weeds. Nothing came of it. And Jesus is saying, not just I'm the vine, I am the true vine. All of the Old Testament stuff, just a shadow pointing to the true one, the true life giver to the world. So he says, I'm the true vine and you're the branches. And then he starts talking about this fruitfulness. And he says, if you do abide in me, hear this promise and be happy. If you abide in Jesus, you will bear much fruit. And guess what? That brings glory. It brings a smile to the face of God. That's beautiful. This is what I mean. I, for the past two out of three summers, 
worked up in Colorado Springs. When Ann and I were dating, we had to have some time living in the same town because we were long distance. And so I would go out to Colorado, work at a plant nursery in the summers, like, I don't know, 50 hours a week, uh, in the sun, planting, pruning, weeding, fertilizing, and delivering perennials to all of, like, all up around the front range uh, region of Colorado. And uh, you would think when I dropped off our products at different nurseries, Home Depot, that kind of places that sold our products, you would think they would say, oh, those are the most beautiful plants ever. Because we were known in, in Colorado, we, uh, across the whole state, we were known as the nursery that delivers only the best stuff. We didn't deliver dinky little plants with like two flowers. Like we delivered the good stuff and they knew it. But I was surprised because I kept dropping off these loads place after place and they never complimented the plants. They didn't say, oh, what a beautiful columbine. Aren't those pretty flowers? Guess what they would say? How do you guys do it? You guys are amazing. How are you so consistent? What's the point? The fruitfulness of the plants we delivered, who did they reflect on? Were people obsessed with the fruitfulness? No, they got, the, they got it. The fruitfulness reflects the gardener. The fruitfulness reflects the owner of the nursery. Because all the other owners of the nursery were delivering junk, and it reflected on them. But Al Britton, who started this nursery and he's been running it 35 years, doesn't send out junk And so when people saw his fruitful plants, they saw him, and they were amazed at him. And that's what God's saying about your life. Do you know that you are a billboard that God is bragging about himself on? He's parading you before the world and saying, look how amazing I am, look how powerful I am, look how fruitful I am, because they see it in you. Little, weak moments. People expect you to do A and you do B because it's fruit coming out of your union with Jesus. They expect you to blow up in anger, expect you to lay on the horn, expect you to, I don't know, kick a roommate out when he annoys you or does something that crosses the line, and you say, no, let's suffer so he can stay, and we'll try to love him through this. People see that, and they see God, just like they did at Britain Nursery. And guess what? Al Britton, my boss, got a heck of a lot of joy from hearing me come back and tell him they did it again. They were like, how do you guys do it? And he'd get a huge smile on his face. Why? Because he knew, and I knew, my back knew how much work went into that. <laughs> Sunburn every day, like this is the posture of my, like for eight or nine hours a day, I was doing this to like weed plants and stuff. And when we got a compliment, it was like all of that work, seven days a week, paid off. And so the glory that the plants got reflected on me and the others at the nursery. Here's the point. Jesus says this thing in here that takes a little work to figure out. He says, I tell you these things so that you will know my joy is, complete, is made complete in you. Now, is he saying this? Is he saying, I tell you these things so that you will have more joy in me? Or is he saying, I tell you these things so that my joy, Jesus' joy, will be made complete? He's saying both. He's not just saying, I'm telling you these things so you can get your act together and become a more joyful person. You've missed the sermon up to this point if you think that's what he's saying. This is one who is looking at a Siamese twin of his and saying, I tell you this so that my joy will be complete in you. My joy in you will be complete. Your joy in me will be complete. Do you believe, Christian, God takes joy? He takes joy. His, his smile, as it were, though he's a spirit, his smile, as it were, is affected by your fruitfulness. 
by your decisions. Do angels really rejoice when you repent? Does heaven care what you do? Or is it all silence and you're just living your life? God says he cares. Jesus says his joy is made complete. The Father is glorified by our fruitfulness. Why? Same thing with Al Britton. It doesn't point to us. It points to the gardener. He gets the glory when people see us, when we're fruitful. Real quick, before we finish, we have to define what it means to abide. Kind of a big word in this passage. Abiding is hard for us to figure out because if you're like me, you don't abide in anything. We're distracted people. We're channel surfers. We're like 15 websites every time we sit down. Um, We're radio dial turners. We don't commit to things and abide in things and linger in things long enough to derive anything from it. We're people on the run. And so it's going to be hard for us to wrap our minds around this in the coming days when you're thinking about this. It's going to be hard for us to wrap our minds around what does it mean to abide. Abiding in him, it's, it's lingering. It's, it's pausing. It's putting down roots in him. It's sinking your teeth into him. It's soaking him up, absorbing him into your life so that his story and your story begin to blur and people can't tell the difference anymore. They look at you, they see him. They look at him, they see you. Uh, and so that's what abiding means. Um, and you can think about it this way. I guess this is what I was trying to think about. How people move from dating to marriage. At first, you start by kind of creeping out someone and investigating them. You go on Facebook, you try to learn about where are they from? Do they have a boyfriend or girlfriend? And you do your little research, you ask their friends about them. But you're outside of them. Your story and their story are very separate. You're trying to do your little PI research to figure out if it's a story you want to be a part of. But over time, you fall in love with this person. You grow in love with this person. You enjoy them more and more, and you want to be a part of their story. And so where there was noise before of two different stories singing two different songs, you get closer, and those two songs start to meld together, and music happens. So at first, you're outside of each other. Then you come inside to each other. Uh, And then music happens. Harmony happens. Not dissonance, not noise. And so that's what he means by abide. The last thing we're we're going to talk about is this. Jesus says, apart from me, you can't do anything. Kind of a bummer, because it means everything you just heard in my sermon, Jesus says, you can't do that. (laughs) It's like he gives you a bunch of chips and takes them back away. No, you can't do it. That's good news, because what's your track record of abiding in Jesus like? Is it like mine today, the past 24 hours? Do you feel noise with Jesus or harmony, music, beautiful things that other people want to come and listen to in your life? Or do people hear noise with you? My track record is awful. I'd imagine yours is too. That's not good news if Jesus says, here's five steps to abide in me. Here's how God helps you and me abide in him. Really quickly, really concretely, he says these things. The Bible, praying people and pruning. Praying people and pruning in the Bible. The first is this. Did you catch how many times Jesus mentions his word or, the, or, or obeying his commandments? He, he seems to confuse, rightly so, his word and him. He kind of starts talking about him interchangeably. If I abide in you and my words abide in you, then you will bear much fruit. They're interchangeable. Jesus and his word. How do you learn the music of Jesus' song? How do you start singing that tune, as it were, as you move close to him? The Bible is the record of his story, pursuing, chasing his people. It's a a painting of him, in a sense, to see his beauty. If you want to fall in love with him, 
If you want to sing that song, if you're attracted by the music, the Bible's the only place you hear it. Because he sings the song. He sings the music. And we come on board with it. And so let me tell you this too. If reading the Bible is impersonal to you, if you don't see Jesus in it, please, would you please, I'm here for that kind of stuff. There's a ton of people out here who would love to sit down with you too. But don't be ashamed to say that. Like I went to seminary because I didn't know how to read the Bible. So it's okay if you say you don't know how to read the Bible. Let's sit down. Let's go to lunch. Let's learn how to see Jesus on every page. Let's see how we plug into him. Here's the second thing. That's the Bible, praying. Jesus talks a lot about prayer. Got to be careful here. Got to be careful. Because he says, if you abide in me and my words in you, ask anything you want and it'll be done for you. Is this genie saying, rub my belly and I'll give you whatever you want? Obviously not. But how do we make sense of that? He's saying this. God is playing an orchestra. If you learn his music, if you're drawn in by that music, he says, there's always an extra chair. Come on up and play with me. If you're joined into, absorbed by, caught up in his music, in his story, he says, play any note you want and it'll fit into what I'm doing. Pray anything, ask anything you want, and it'll fit harmoniously with what I'm doing in the world, what I'm doing in your life. That's a huge promise, guys. But he, doesn't, he, he says, this is not okay. You can't come up and start singing a solo. Or if he's doing a strings symphony, you can't come up with like a kazoo or something. You can't come up and play your own solo because it's noise, it's dissonance. And so if you ask something according to your will, something to spend on your own passions, he never promises he'll give you that. How do your prayers sound? Do you pray the kind of prayer, Lord, give me clarity, 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 clarity? Or do you pray, Father, if it's your will for me to have to walk forward into the dark, oh, let me see Jesus with me. Let me trust you. That's what it means to be singing the same tunes as the Father. And he loves to hear that prayer. And with 100% consistency, he says, done. Absolutely. You want more faith? Bam. More faith. You want wisdom? I'll give you wisdom. Third is people. The other branches on the vine. Who's going to point you back to the vine when you start obsessing, looking at the branch, saying, where are the roots? Where are the roots? Where's the water? Where's the stem? Who's going to be there on those days for you when you're like I was when Rob was there for me, when I went into his office and asked him that? People, other Christians. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. You cannot do the Christian life alone. The fact that you're at a campus ministry on a Tuesday night tells me a little bit something about you've learned that lesson, but you probably have friends and roommates that haven't. Jesus says this, they will wither. You will wither. I will wither. It's a promise. If we're disconnected from the vine where the other branches are as well. And so he says to plug into other people, love them the way he loved us. And the last one is this. This is where we end pruning. This is beautiful and this is so hard to hear. Because Jesus starts out saying that the father is the vine dresser. What's he mean? And he says he prunes. If you're bearing fruit, he prunes you so that you'll bear more fruit. They use knives and pruning shears to prune plants. We did it all the time in the nursery. Why do you prune? Have you ever seen a tomato plant that's just kind of wildly growing or a grape vineyard that's been overgrown? If you don't prune, the plant doesn't know where to direct its energy. And so if you've seen a tomato plant left to itself, there's no tomatoes on it because the plant is wasting its energy on putting out flowers, on putting out new branches. 
it's not producing fruit. And so if you're going to be a good caretaker of your tomato plant, you have to go in and pinch off and tear off all the little places where the plant is wasting energy, wasting nourishment, growing out of control, unfocused, unproductive. You have to direct it to push it towards fruitfulness, very hands-on. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The Father looks at you. He delights in the fruit that he's producing in you, but he is eager for more. And so do you look into his eyes and see a skillful master gardener who is carefully, precisely cutting here, cutting there, very precious things? Have you been pruned lately? You know what it is like to feel something precious in your life cut out? That's what John Newton's song was about. I asked the Lord that I might grow uh, in faith and love and every grace that I might more of his salvation know. Those were good prayers. Those were orchestra prayers, singing the song God is singing. And he said, I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and basically make that happen in me. Magic, bam. You're mature. You've grown. I've pruned you. You're fruitful now. Instead, here's the pruner. This is beautiful, and this is powerful, and this hurts. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. And even more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He thwarted all the fair designs I schemed and cast my feelings and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Are you, will you pursue this worm to death? And the pruner, the vine dresser, says, This is the way, the Lord replied. Replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes, our plans for earthly joy that you may find your all in me, that you may find your all in me. God loves you enough to kill and to cut and to take things out that cause us to grow lopsided or cause us to be fruitless or cause us to grow in this way or waste energy and nourishment. He loves you. He loves you. He takes great joy in the fruit he produces through you. Do you hear that? Do you believe that? The final exhortation, abide in Jesus. He is the vine. He's the strong one. You get to be the weak one.